Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Did the Supreme Court just kill console games? A lawyer reads Apple Inc. versus Pepper. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm. And as much as I wasn't expecting doing a video on virtual legality today, a rather big Supreme Court case in the United States dropped that I think we really, really need to discuss. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about that case The only document we're going to be looking at is the opinion that has been issued by the Supreme Court in respect of that case, and we're going to go through it. Uh, Like I look at these cases when they're not in virtual legality, when they're on other topics, uh, I do this on a fairly regular basis. If you're thinking about going to law school, this is the kind of thing that you will wind up reading a lot. This is the way you learn the law, at least in the United States, is by reading Supreme Court cases, by looking at what the decision was, what the dissent is, thinking about it on your own, what the case stands for. And today... It was important enough that I thought we would take a special time to really just kind of walk through an opinion, take a look at what it means uh, in the grand scheme of things, and go from there. So without further ado, let's take a look at that case because I think this is a rather big one. I I have my own personal issues with exactly how it was decided, which we will get to undoubtedly as part of this commentary. But the name of the case is Apple Inc. versus Pepper. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to talk about how opinions look from the Supreme Court. And so this is the original slip opinion. This came out today as the decision came out. And this is what people reflect on when you read about something in the news, when you hear CNN talk about the Apple iStore uh, and how iOS was impacted. This is what they looked at. And the very first couple pages here are an abstract. They are a summary of what the entire opinion says so that it can be easily understood and easily read by folks interested and by news broadcasters. So we're just going to take a look at that. We're going to read it in its entirety. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit before getting into the opinion, talking about who wrote the opinion, what the arguments are, talking about my own thoughts. But this does have a significant potential impact on really the entire gaming industry, the console gaming industry as we know it, because they are all basically structured in a very similar way to the way the Apple iOS store is. So With that in the back of your mind, let's read the summary of this case. It says it was argued in November, it was decided today, and it says Apple Inc. sells iPhone applications or apps directly to iPhone owners through its app store, the only place where iPhone owners may lawfully buy apps. Most of those apps are created by independent developers under contracts with Apple. Apple charges the developers a $99 annual membership fee, allows them to set the retail price of the apps, and charges a 30% commission on every app sale. Respondents, four iPhone owners, sued Apple, alleging that the company has unlawfully monopolized the aftermarket for iPhone apps. Apple moved to dismiss, arguing that the iPhone owners could not sue because they were not direct purchasers from Apple under a previous precedent called Illinois Brick. The district court agreed, but the Ninth Circuit reversed concluding that the iPhone owners were direct purchasers because they purchased apps directly from Apple. 
So we're going to back that up just a little bit. This is the overall uh, description of events that led us to a Supreme Court case. I think the early parts of this description we all know and understand. If you purchase an iPhone, you can only buy apps that work on that iPhone uh, through the Apple Store, through the App Store that Apple provides, and through developers that have contracted with Apple and have agreed to give them this 30% commission. It is what's known in the industry as a walled garden approach. It's not open for everybody to put their apps onto. And the main competitors to Apple that exist in this space, especially the, the phone space, allow for a more open approach in many instances. So this is kind of what Apple is known for, is this walled garden, this closed ecosystem. And what the court case was about was that four people that purchased an iPhone sued Apple, saying that they were monopolizing the market of essentially iPhone and iPad apps, uh, that they could limit the market size to only those things. And when you limit the size of the market to that description, the only provider of those apps is Apple. And so they're a monopolist and these folks desired to sue them for overcharging under their monopoly powers. Now, we're going to get to it when we talk about the decision made in this case, but this case doesn't ultimately decide whether or not Apple is a monopolist for operating its app store this way. That's going to be the next big question when this all gets sorted out in the next phase of proceedings. As you can see from this description, they started out trying to bring their claim in the district court, the lowest court, and the district court said, no, that you got to kick that out because you're not uh, the person that was directly harmed by this. The developers were harmed if there's a monopolistic price, not you. And then the Ninth Circuit, which is the appeals court that's just above that district court, reversed it. And they said, no, no, I think that you should be able to sue because you are harmed because you're a direct purchaser from Apple. Uh, and now at the Supreme Court level in a five to four decision, so the narrowest of margins, the Supreme Court has agreed with the Ninth Circuit. We're going to see that in just a second and has said that if you purchase an Apple phone, you are allowed to potentially sue Apple for monopolistic practices related to the sale of apps to you at above market prices uh, because you are the direct purchaser. So here's what the holding actually says. It says under Illinois brick, which was that precedent we talked about, the iPhone owners were direct purchasers who may sue Apple for alleged monopolization. This straightforward conclusion follows from the text of the antitrust laws and from this court's precedent. Section 4 of the Clayton Act provides that any person who shall be injured in his business or property by reason of anything forbidden in the antitrust laws may sue. That broad text readily covers consumers who purchase goods or services at higher than competitive prices from an allegedly monopolistic retailer. Applying Section 4, this court has consistently stated that the immediate buyers from the alleged antitrust violators may maintain a suit against the antitrust violators. And I'm going to skip most of the internal citations here because they're not terribly useful in this format. But if you want, I'm going to link this uh, in the description. You can take a look at these internal citations. You can look up these sites and look at the cases that they cite for yourselves. Certainly, that's kind of the law school and legal research practice. Uh, and you can give it a try if you'd like. Uh, but I'm going to skip them for purposes of this discussion going forward. But it has ruled that indirect purchasers who are two or more steps removed from the violator in a distribution chain may not sue. So let's stop right there. That sentence is what is the current uh, kind of set up for the precedent. That's what Illinois BRIC stands for. Direct purchasers can sue and indirect purchasers cannot sue. And that's how they're reading Illinois BRIC. And part of the magic of a Supreme Court case is uh, they interpret existing precedents uh, in new and interesting ways. And we will see when we look at the dissent to this case that the dissent feels that this was a mischaracterization of what Illinois BRIC stands for. 
Uh, but they're basically saying if there's a direct contractual relationship, you can sue. And if there's not, there might be a problem, probably is a problem. Going forward with the summary of their holding, unlike the consumer in Illinois Brick, the iPhone owners here are not consumers at the bottom of a vertical distribution chain who are attempting to sue manufacturers at the top of the chain. The absence of an intermediary in the distribution chain between Apple and the consumer is dispositive. It determines the question. The second holding, Apple argues that Illinois Brick allows consumers to sue only the party who sets the retail price whether or not the party sells the good or service directly to the complaining party. So Apple's argument here was, okay, well, even if we were potentially monopolistic, we're not setting the prices on these things. The developers are setting the prices. So how are you claiming that we are the ones benefiting from some kind of antitrust practice? And the court says that's not the dispositive uh, question. They say, but that theory suffers from three main problems. First, it contradicts statutory text and precedent by requiring the court to rewrite the rationale of Illinois BRIC and gut its long-standing bright-line rule. Any ambiguity in Illinois BRIC should be resolved in the direction of the statutory text, which states that any person injured by an antitrust violation may sue to recover damages. So philosophically, the court here is saying, look, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which basically says you can't, don't commit antitrust violations. Uh, we can go into it at some other video at some point. But it says that, and it says it very broadly. The United States is very interested in stopping antitrust, stopping anti-competitive practices. And so uh, the court here is saying that was intended to be very broad. And so we are going to read it very broadly. And we are not going to look at a whole lot of legal technicalities on this. That's the overall philosophical thrust of this holding. They continue. Second, Apple's theory is not persuasive economically or legally. It would draw an arbitrary and unprincipled line among retailers based on their financial arrangements with their manufacturers or suppliers. And it would permit a consumer to sue a monopolistic retailer when the retailer set the retail price by marking up the price it had paid the manufacturer or supplier for the good or service, but not when the manufacturer or supplier set the retail price and the retailer just took a commission on each sale. Third, Apple's theory would provide a roadmap for monopolistic retailers to structure transactions with manufacturers or suppliers so as to evade antitrust claims by consumers and thereby thwart effective antitrust enforcement. Now, this is an interesting piece of the holding because what they're basically saying here is if you agree with Apple that the real the real uh, monopolistic antitrust activity, if it exists at all, is with the folks that are setting the prices, then they're saying, well, then you can structure your contracts in a specific way to make sure that you're never setting prices. You can avoid the uh, implications of the law by allowing that kind of rule. And one of the things I think that pops out of this Apple and Pepper holding and the dissent harps on to some degree when we get there is the, the fact that what they are setting as the rule, which is the direct contractual relationship, they're, they are really going to hang their hat on the fact that the way you buy an app from the Apple app store right now is actually a contract with Apple. That you, Joe or Mary or whomever, when you say you want to buy whatever app it is that you want to buy, you're actually agreeing to buy it from Apple. And then Apple sends it 70% that's owed to the developer Back to the developer, one of the major arguments that the dissent is going to put forth is, well, if we say that direct contractual relationships matter, then it's simple enough for these folks to reverse it. You essentially would have Apple uh, agreeing that you pay the money directly to the developer, and whenever the developer gets that money, it pays 30% to Apple instead of doing the reverse, and that that actually gives exactly the problem that the court is saying they're trying to avoid in this holding to the rule that they're putting forth in this case. And I tend to agree with the dissent on that. I think that this is a very narrow look at what the current 
state of technology, the current state of console gaming is. And this isn't limited to gaming. This is the entire Apple App Store, but I think it really does hit your PlayStation Network, your Xbox Live, your Apple App Store, and various other kind of walled garden environments. And so I think everybody in the gaming industry needs to be looking at this, concerned about this. It isn't the end of this fight because essentially Apple still has to go forward and lose another case where they're held to be monopolistic and causing these damages. But this certainly opens the door significantly wider than we would have assumed it was open when we woke up this morning. And so I think that's why we're going over it in virtual legality. That's why we're talking about it now. This is not some little thing. This has the possibility to really break down the existing business models in the industry in a way that is not going to work for a lot of people that are currently structuring their businesses in the console space, especially if Apple loses at the end of the day and the court finds them to be monopolists that are overcharging for access to their own app store. Uh, which I think is its own interesting ruling, uh, but we won't get there until we have to cross that bridge. The final thing that the court holds in this summary is contrary to Apple's argument, the three Illinois brick rationales for adopting the direct purchaser rule cut strongly in respondents' favor. First, Apple posits that allowing only the upstream app developers and not the downstream consumers to sue Apple would mean more effective antitrust enforcement. But that makes little sense, and it would directly contradict the long-standing goal of effectively private enforcement and consumer protection in antitrust cases. Second, Apple warns that calculating the damages in successful consumer antitrust suits against monopolistic retailers might be complicated. But Illinois BRIC is not a get-out-of-court-free card for monopolistic retailers to play any time that a damages calculation might be complicated. Third, Apple claims that allowing consumers to sue will result in conflicting claims to a common fund the amount of the alleged overcharge. But this is not a case where multiple parties at different levels of a distribution chain are trying to recover the same pass-through overcharge initially levied by the manufacturer at the top of the chain. So there's a lot of gobbledygook in there, but the one thing I think you can take, again, philosophically, is that the court isn't interested in Apple's argument. They are essentially shutting them down without much of a counterpoint. We will see some minor-styled counterpoints when we actually get into the opinion itself, but they basically say... When Apple says, well, look, we've always had it so that whoever's getting hurt by a monopolistic charge has to sue and you can't look three steps down. And the persons that are hurt here are the people that have to pay the 30%, not the consumers who are paying somewhere between zero and 30% based on whatever the developers are passing through of that amount. And that's if we're a monopolist, then they don't care about Apple's argument there. They say, no, nah, it'll be fine, that it's not a get out of court free card, that it's going to be complicated to calculate. And I think by kicking them out with that kind of uh, disregard for their arguments shows exactly where the court is thinking here. They want a broad enforcement of antitrust. They don't much care for the, the economic arguments here, and they don't much care for the precedent that Illinois BRIC established of that kind of proximity of damages. I, I really do equate this case to what you might have heard if you're not a lawyer in the news uh, or in other situations, maybe on television, where you're talking about standing. Uh, the law basically tries to make it so that you are directly damaged, you're directly impacted by something. That's when you get to sue. And if it gets not close enough to what the point of damage was, if it's too many steps removed, it becomes harder and harder to sue. Not impossible in all cases. There's an exception to every rule. But for the most part, the law wants to make sure that if you're hit by a bus, you can sue the bus company. But if you see somebody hit by a bus and that makes you late for a meeting and you lose your job, hey, maybe you can sue but it's a lot harder to sue, that you're not proximately damaged by that bus hitting that person. You weren't the one that was hit. 
And like that, this case seems to be about, okay, the developers are selling something to Apple. They're paying 30% to have that access to the App Store. And the people below them, the, the actual consumers, the end users that go to buy the games or buy the applications, they want to be able to sue Apple, not the developer. And the developer could also sue Apple at the same time. So Apple's sitting here saying, well, does that mean that the consumers and the developers can sue us? Because that's a problem. And it does result in a possibility of doubling up on charges. It's very difficult, as you can imagine, to surmise exactly what somebody passed through as part of the 30%. Are you going to do some kind of straight line mathematics on that? And these are all the things that Apple brought up. And essentially, the court says, too bad. We think that the Sherman Act is supposed to be read broadly. And so uh, it's not our problem. Go figure it out. It's the 21st century and we don't care. Uh, and I think that's an interesting stance to take. And it's certainly a more kind of command and control economy type stance to take. So that's why it was interesting to see who made this decision in the Supreme Court, again, on a five to four basis. So let's take a look at that before we get into the opinions itself. It says, Justice Kavanaugh, I like Beer Kavanaugh himself, delivered the opinion of the court. And you might say, oh, OK, that's interesting. So the conservative side, the right side uh, went for this. No, nope, definitely not. Justice Kavanaugh delivered the opinion of the court in which Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan joined, with Gorsuch uh, filing a dissenting opinion in which Chief Justice Roberts, Thomas, and Alito joined. So essentially you have what is now the kind of traditional conservative liberal split on the court with Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan on one side and Gorsuch, Roberts, Thomas, and Alito on the other, and Kavanaugh sitting in the quasi-Roberts, quasi-Kennedy seat and siding with uh, what we generally think of as the more uh, left side of the court to win a 5-4 decision over the right side of the court. So uh, it's an interesting decision. Obviously, we don't have a lot of historical precedent for what Justice Kavanaugh is thinking on any number of things, but certainly not on something like this, which is a far-reaching antitrust and economics case. And certainly for Supreme Court watchers, for people that are watching the jurisprudence of the United States in general, this is an interesting data point that Kavanaugh would make a decision like this, which does appear to have potentially far-reaching effects, and to do it joining on with uh, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, uh, and certainly to the consternation of the, the other folks uh, on the bench. And so this is one of those decisions where there's clearly a little bit of animosity, certainly a disagreement as to how the law is written. And we're going to skim through some of the thesis paragraphs and some of the hypotheses that uh, Justice Kavanaugh puts forth as to how this will act uh, in total, as well as some of the thoughts of the dissent. But in that summary, you've seen what the case actually is. It's saying that Apple can be sued by iPhone owners for the prices in the App Store. And what Justice Kavanaugh will ultimately hang his hat on here is that specific contractual relationship that we talked about, that he will focus on this direct purchaser's requirement. He will read Illinois Brick, and he and the other four members of the court that wind up agreeing with him will read Illinois Brick to say, if you have a direct purchaser relationship, you can sue. And if you don't, basically you cannot. When we read Supreme Court cases, you actually can't read the reverse of whatever the holding is. That's not uh, how Supreme Court cases work. We can read them as implied, and that would be used as part of an argument in the future if that was the actual case or controversy before the court. But we can assume that that's intended by what is being written here. But the actual holding is, if you have this direct contractual relationship, you can sue them. And I'm not entirely uh, against that kind of reading. I think 
if you actually have this relationship with Apple, if that dollar that you pay for that app goes directly to Apple and then they pass it on, okay, then you do have that direct contractual relationship and maybe you should be allowed to sue. But I do think it skips the, the really big issue, which is that Apple can just make sure that you're, they're not on the contract when you buy that developer item. And it just basically makes things a little bit less efficient for Apple it gives a greater possibility of them experiencing a loss if you have to pay the money to the developers and then they have to remit it to Apple. There's a possibility of that money getting lost somewhere along the way. And so I don't know that this answers anything. I don't know that it will actually stop the practices that we see from Apple and Nintendo and, and Microsoft and Sony, but it does create another legal loophole to think about when you are structuring the way your network infrastructure works. And it might create problems for a number of folks. And that'll be interesting to follow because certainly if it is found and if this is used as a wedge in the door to find that Apple is a monopolist and that the 30% is monopolistic of its own market, of its market in its own apps, its own access to its own technology, uh, then that could have even further reaching implications for all sorts of technological access. You know, if the if the developer of a piece of software isn't allowed to price access to their own software because they are the monopolistic seller of their piece of software, which at the end of the day, the App Store really is, it's an access point for what Apple has developed and working on their hardware, then you might see that kind of impact all across a number of industries since we are moving to so much more software. But let's take a look at this holding in a little bit more detail. We're going to skip the history. We now know exactly what it's about. Uh, and we're going to go straight to when they start talking about holdings. Here, Justice Kavanaugh says, the plaintiff's allegations boil down to one straightforward claim that Apple exercises monopoly power in the retail market for the sale of apps and has unlawfully used that power to force iPhone owners to pay Apple higher than competitive prices for apps. According to the plaintiffs, when iPhone owners want to purchase an app, they have only two options, buy the app from Apple's app store at a higher than competitive price or do not buy the app at all. Any iPhone owners who are dissatisfied with the selection of apps available in the App Store or with the price of the apps available in the App Store are out of luck, or so the plaintiffs allege. He then says, The sole question presented at this early stage of the case is whether these consumers are proper plaintiffs for this kind of antitrust suit. In particular, our precedents ask whether the consumers were direct purchasers from Apple. It is undisputed that the iPhone owners bought the apps directly from Apple. Therefore, under Illinois BRIC, the iPhone owners were direct purchasers who may sue Apple for alleged monopolization. Now, there's a lot more pages left in the holding, right? So you're thinking, okay, well, that paragraph does it completely. They say it's undisputed that they bought them directly from Apple. Therefore, they're allowed to sue. Uh, and honestly, that's really what the holding winds up being. He goes forward and talks about the breadth of the Sherman Act. He talks about uh, in applying it, he wants to have it be broad because that's what the Sherman Act intended. Uh, he talks a little bit about Illinois BRIC which was a case where, uh, let's see if we can find a quick summary that he puts there. He says, the facts of Illinois Brick illustrate the rule. Illinois Brick Company manufactured and distributed concrete blocks. So they're the manufacturer of concrete blocks. Illinois Brick sold the, the blocks primarily to masonry contractors. So that's the first step in the chain. And then those contractors in, told, in turn sold masonry structures to general contractors. That's the second step. So you got Illinois Brick, they're making blocks. They sell them to masonry folks, and then those masonry folks sell them to general contractors. Those general contractors then sell them to the state of Illinois, the ultimate consumer of the blocks. So it's a four-chain uh, set of sales that ultimately wind up with the blocks in the hands of the state of Illinois. The consumer state of Illinois winds up suing the manufacturer Illinois Brick. So they don't sue the people that they bought the blocks from, which is the general contractor. They wind up suing 
three or four steps up the chain to Illinois Brick that made the bricks themselves. The state alleged that Illinois Brick had engaged in a conspiracy to fix the price of concrete blocks. According to the complaint, the state paid more for the concrete blocks than it would have paid absent the price-fixing conspiracy. So on its face, this looks a lot like the scenario we're talking about with respect to the App Store. We're talking about developers that have to uh, pay 30% of a toll up to Apple, and it's that 30% that is in question in this case. And so they wind up passing along a higher-priced good to these consumers that are hurt by that pass-along. So it looks the same, but they say it's not the same. The monopoly overcharge allegedly flowed all the way down the distribution chain to the ultimate consumer who was the state of Illinois. This court ruled that the state could not bring an antitrust action against Illinois Brick, the alleged violator, because the state had not purchased concrete blocks directly from Illinois Brick. The proper plaintiff to bring that claim against Illinois Brick, the court stated, would be an entity that had purchased directly from Illinois Brick. As we talked about with respect to proximate cause and direct damages and standing and these kinds of concepts in the law, the law prefers to have the person that is directly damaged be able to bring claims and not have indirect damages further on down the line because they become so much harder to prove that they exist at all uh, and that the damages occurred at all. And so where you've got one sale, two sales, three sales, four sales, by the time you've had four sales, it's very difficult to trace back that you were damaged by that first sale. So the law says, okay, we're going to set as a precedent that only that first sale can bring the claim. They're the ones that we know were damaged if there was a monopolistic price. So we're going to make them have the suit. In this case, the Apple Store case, uh, Apple versus Pepper, you've got a circumstance where because the end user, the purchaser of the phone that's buying the, the application or the game is buying it directly from Apple and is not buying it from uh, whomever, from whatever developer you want to think of, the court has found that that is that direct purchaser requirement, even though Apple isn't setting the price. And so it's not a perfect analogy, period. Uh, but it is one where we can start to kind of take out pieces of understanding. And so I think the court has a good point in saying that, hey, if you contracted directly with Apple, how are you supposed to ask us to step in and say you can't sue Apple when that dollar that you pay actually goes to Apple and then Apple passes along the 70% back to the developer? Uh, so I think they make a good point there. The problem that I have with it is ultimately that it's pretty easy to reverse. From a legal standpoint, they seem concerned, we're going to get there in just a second, that somebody could get around it by making their contracts different. But I don't think that this rule that they've established, that is this contractual requirement, if you've signed with Apple, then you're in trouble, is that hard to get around. You just make the contracts directly with the developers and you go from there. Uh, they go on to describe this case by making that distinction that we just talked about. In this case, unlike in Illinois Brick, the iPhone owners are not consumers at the bottom of a vertical distribution chain who are attempting to sue manufacturers at the top of the chain. There is no intermediary in the distribution chain between Apple and the consumer. The iPhone owners purchase apps directly from the retailer Apple, who is the alleged antitrust violator. The iPhone owners pay the alleged overcharge directly to Apple. The absence of an intermediary is dispositive. Under Illinois BRIC, the iPhone owners are direct purchasers from Apple and are proper plaintiffs to maintain this antitrust suit. So they're repeating themselves, but that's okay because you want them to be certain about what it is they're saying is the law because the law governs how we operate in a society. So when you're reading a Supreme Court case, you get some of that repetition. You get different ways of arriving at the same result so that you can better understand exactly what the law is, or hopefully you can better understand exactly what the law is. Then they start talking about Apple's defenses. They say, uh, we see three main problems with Apple's set the price theory. They want to make it so that you can only sue the party that sets the price. Since the developers set the price, they want to say you can't sue Apple. They 
get rid of these claims, as we saw in that paragraph, in a kind of matter-of-fact way, which I think belies the fact that they had essentially pre-decided that this was the way they were going to go. They were going to have a broad reading of the Sherman Act, and they didn't much care about what Apple said about it. They say, Apple's theory contradicts statutory text. We want to read it broadly. Then they say, in addition to deviating from statutory text and precedent, their proposed rule is not persuasive economically or legally. So let's dive into this one a little bit more because I don't think they do a terribly good job explaining what they mean here. Apple's effort to transform Illinois brick from a direct purchaser rule to a who sets the price rule would draw an arbitrary and unprincipled line among retailers based on retailers' financial arrangements with their manufacturers or suppliers. In the retail context, the price charged by a retailer to a consumer is often a result, at least in part, of the price charged by the manufacturer or supplier to the retailer or of negotiations between the manufacturer or supplier and the retailer. They're saying prices that are going out from a retailer are a function of the input prices that the retailer experiences. Absolutely true. Those agreements between manufacturer or supplier and retailer may take myriad forms, including, for example, a markup pricing model or a commission pricing model. In a traditional markup pricing model, a hypothetical monopolistic retailer might pay $6 to the manufacturer and sell the product for $10, keeping four for itself. So that's a standard kind of distribution model. The retailer has to buy the goods from the manufacturer. They buy them at a certain low price and they sell them at a certain higher price and they keep whatever higher price they can sell it for. In a commission pricing model, the retailer might pay nothing to the manufacturer, agree with the manufacturer that the retailer will sell the product for $10 and keep 40% of the sales price and then sell the product for $10, send $6 back to the manufacturer and keep $4. In those two different pricing scenarios, everything turns out to be economically the same for the manufacturer, retailer, and consumer. Yet Apple's proposed rule would allow a consumer to sue the monopolistic retailer in the former situation, where the retailer is setting the price, it's deciding what the higher price is, but not the latter, where the manufacturer or supplier is setting the price and the retailer is essentially just a conduit. In other words, under Apple's rule, a consumer could sue a monopolistic retailer when the retailer set the retail price by marking up the price it had paid, the manufacturer's supplier for the good or service, but a consumer could not sue a monopolistic retailer when the manufacturer or supplier set the retail price and the retailer took a commission on each sale, which is just what I said. So he's just repeating what I said, but in fairness, he wrote it first. Uh, And so I'm not sure that's a terribly good example because when he's talking about commissions here, he talks about a commission in which the manufacturer sets that $10 price. And certainly when I'm thinking about things economically, and if you don't know me, if this is your first time visiting the channel, welcome. Uh, I'm an economics guy. I had an economics degree that went with my law degree. And so I think about these things quite a lot. I represent businesses. I write contracts. And when he's talking about this, he says the manufacturer sets the $10 price and the retailer gets to keep 40%. And so they're just a conduit. The $10 goes out. And they say you shouldn't be able to sell, you wouldn't be able to sue the retailer in that context where the manufacturer set the $10 price, even though all of the money gets distributed the same way. And I look at that and I say, well, that's true that the end result is the same. But in each case, the actual actor is in fact different. If the retailer is setting that $10 price and they're a monopolist, they're the ones doing the wrong. And if the retailer is a monopolist, which is the assumption going in that they can be sued for these damages. It's very difficult to imagine a scenario in which we've got a monopolistic retailer that has to take from the manufacturer the price that it is going to sell out in the open market. I'm trying to figure out in reality, this is a perfectly fine hypothetical, but in reality, where we can both satisfy the manufacturer is setting the price and the retailer is also acting with monopolistic power. 
those two things seem to be diametrically opposed. And so I think he's stealing a base here by suggesting that we can assume we're talking about a monopolistic retailer and the manufacturer is setting the price, when in fact, I think the fact that the manufacturer is setting the price basically speaks pretty strongly against the fact that the retailer has that monopolistic power, because if they had that power, then they wouldn't be having to agree to these prices from the manufacturer. And then you'd be able to sue them anyway, because they're setting the higher price that is doing you harm. But let's assume for a moment that his hypothetical is correct. Just from a kind of logic and justice standpoint, uh, why wouldn't the proper party to be sued in that circumstance be the manufacturer? If they're the one setting the $10 price and the retailer is essentially nothing but a conduit for the manufacturer, they aren't doing anything really other than having a storefront or potentially a logistics management software, something along those lines. Why shouldn't those that are harmed be able to sue the person that's setting the price uh, rather than the, the person that is essentially acting as the conduit to them? And so I think they're getting confused on this issue. I think the dissent has the better part of the description of what's happening here that you want to be able to have that damage, just like the person being hit by a bus, be as close to where the bus is as possible. And in this circumstance, Apple is basically right. The people that are setting the price are the ones that have the best cause of action for these kinds of things. And to the extent Apple is setting a 30% price, Apple is setting a 30% price for its developers, not for its end users, not for the purchasers of iPhones. And so if the developers want to sue Apple about that 30%, that I don't think they have any argument against, at least not under all of the theories of this case. And I think Apple would be amenable to allowing them through these theories. They would obviously have their own defenses about why they're not a monopolist on that 30%. But whereas here they've said the end users can sue, Presumably, the developers can still sue. There's a lot of overlapping liability, and that's one of the things that Apple really has a problem with here, and that the court winds up just hand-waving away. They then start to describe Apple pretty meanly. They say Apple's line drawing does not make a lot of sense, other than as a way to gerrymander Apple out of this and similar lawsuits. In particular, we fail to see why the form of the upstream arrangement between the manufacturer or supplier and the retailer should determine whether a monopolistic retailer can be sued by a downstream consumer who has purchased a good or service directly from the retailer and has paid a higher than competitive price because of the retailer's unlawful monopolistic conduct. Again, same stolen base right there. They're assuming that a monopolistic retailer just exists, that they have monopoly power that they're exerting, regardless of whether they set the price or have the price imposed upon them. And I think that really leads to some bad logic holes in what the court is saying on these kinds of things. And that's maybe the fundamental issue with a lot of the economic discussion here. And hey, I'm fine from a legal perspective. If you say Congress passed a really broad law and we're going to read it very broadly, uh, you have privity of contract and that's the end of the story. When you start analyzing economics, First of all, the Supreme Court has not always been great at that. There's a number of cases that you can look to to see how the court has essentially missed the entirety of the story with respect to economics. I, you don't need this defense. You're just trying to squash some of the things that Apple says. And in my opinion, you're doing a fairly poor job of it. Stick with the privity of contract. That's a better case for you. And don't get into this notion of uh, contracts and economics and try to prove that Apple is not going to be otherwise impacted by this. To be sure, if the monopolistic retailer's conduct has not caused the consumer to pay a higher than competitive price, then the plaintiff's damages will be zero. Here, for example, if the competitive commission rate were 10% rather than 30%, but Apple could prove that app developers in a 10% commission system would always set a higher price such that consumers would pay the same retail price regardless of whether Apple's commission was 10 or 30%, then the consumer's damages would presumably be zero. And here they start talking about 
Apple trying to say it's difficult to calculate exactly what's happening here. And obviously just from that sentence, you can see the number of ways in which it will be difficult to calculate. You have to prove that there is a market rate of royalties, the 30%, the 20%, the 10%, whatever that should look like. If the Apple ecosystem were open, which it isn't, which already creates a kind of counterfactual that the law will have to establish through uh, sometimes interesting expert testimony and witnesses and economic analysis and things of that nature. Then once you establish that there's a proper competitive rate and that Apple goes above that, then you have to be able to say, well, maybe the developers would have just taken the extra. They would have raised the price. Certainly you can kind of see that argument already with places like the Epic Game Store, where you've got Epic Games only taking a 12% cut versus Steam's 30% cut on the PC marketplace. And any number of games have come over to the Epic Game Store and have sold at the same retail price that they sold on Steam, which suggests that if you take that commission down, the developers are already happy with the price that they're getting. They've understood what the supply and demand curves are for the product that they're getting out there onto the market. And so they're not going to move their price at all. And the court is saying, well, hey, maybe Apple could defend with that case. But how do you prove that? You can't dimension hop. You can't go into an alternate reality to establish that that has happened. And so the court and the law is going to get more and more and more into the business decisions of these companies to determine what, if any, damages exist. And that's what Apple was trying to avoid by saying, look, even if you hold us monopolistic on this, you're talking about a pass-through type of liability, and it's enormously difficult to say whatever happened. And the court basically hand waves it and say, not our problem. If you are a monopolist and you are acting against the Sherman Act, you figure it out because even if it's complicated to establish, that's not for us to decide. And in fairness, philosophically, I'm in favor of that. I think the court should in, uphold the law and impose it however they see fit. They can put a note in their decisions and say, hey, this is what Congress demanded. And a judge, I have no problem with a justice or a judge saying, I don't like it. Go talk to Congress. Uh, but in this particular case, they go further and basically say that Apple doesn't have a case here. It's not going to be any more difficult. And Apple's going to have defenses to whatever would be difficult about it. I don't know that I agree with that. In fact, I don't. Uh, but that is the case of what they put forward here. The third, I believe, final thing they say here is if accepted, if Apple's theory uh, to only have uh, antitrust liability in this circumstance be imposed on those setting the prices, the developers, if accepted, Apple's theory would provide a roadmap for monopolistic retailers to structure transactions with manufacturers or suppliers so as to evade antitrust claims by consumers and thereby thwart effective antitrust enforcement. So they want to say, okay, if we allow this price setting thing to be where we set our rule, then they're all going to do the commission-based thing, which we just talked about, where the manufacturers are setting the price and Apple takes the price, and then uh, everybody has to sue the manufacturer, in this case, a, a video game or app developer. And they say, that's not cool. We don't want to have mere contracts, mere organizations, mere lawyers setting what your liability is. We want to look through to what the actual form of the transaction is because everything else is formalistic and we're trying to get to the heart of where people are damaged. And I think that's noble. I think that's the right thing to be focused on. Unfortunately, I think the rule they wound up setting, which is if you are a direct consumer, then you can sue. And with the implication that if you are not a direct consumer, you cannot sue, uh, that is going to result in exactly this. That is going to result in exactly Apple saying, fine, we're not on any contracts anymore. You're going to buy that game directly from Electronic Arts or Activision or whomever, and they're going to remit their 30% to us, and you're no longer in our pipeline, and so you can't sue us for any uh, monopolistic tendencies because, hey, you're an indirect purchaser of ours now. Going forward with what the court actually describes on this question, they say, consider a traditional supplier-retailer relationship in which the retailer purchases a product from the supplier and sells the product with a markup to consumers. 
Under Apple's proposed rule, a retailer, instead of buying the product from the supplier, could arrange to sell the product for the supplier without purchasing it from the supplier. That's the commission type of relationship we just talked about. In fact, I work on contracts for my clients all the time that kind of separate between uh, distribution and what we call sales representative, uh, where a sales representative can sell something on behalf of a, an actual seller, a manufacturer of some kind. They can log that in and send it up to the manufacturer. The manufacturer does a direct shipment to the purchaser and then gives a cut to the sales representative. And that's distinct from a distributor, which uh, buys their goods and then sells them at some markup to you know, make their living. Uh, and so they're saying that would be different. If you allowed those two circumstances to be treated differently, then Apple would obviously just structure it in the way that it doesn't have to deal with this potential monopolistic liability. And they don't want that to, ha- they don't, they don't want that to happen. Uh, then they go through Illinois Brick. They talk a lot about Illinois Brick, about, um, they say, uh, Apple's defenses on a kind of more uh, generalized philosophical approach. It says Apple argues that barring iPhone owners from suing Apple will better promote effective enforcement of the antitrust laws. We talked about that. Uh, they say Apple posits that allowing only the upstream app developers and not the downstream consumers to sue Apple would mean more effective enforcement of the antitrust laws. We do not agree. Leaving consumers at the mercy of monopolistic retailers simply because upstream suppliers could also sue the retailers makes little sense. But They've, they've separated these out into upstream and downstream, and I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. They both seem like they are downstream of Apple if we're actually thinking about how the organizational structure of this business relationship works. And again, the court just hands waves it. This says, nope, Apple's not right. We think it makes little sense. That's the only argument they wind up giving in the Supreme Court case. And when you see those in Supreme Court cases, you start to say, okay, well, this decision was already made and they are just saying why they're not going along with Apple. It, it makes little sense to them. Okay, that's fine. The Supreme Court is the ultimate power on these kinds of questions. So they're allowed to say those kinds of things. Then Apple says, what we talked about earlier, it'll be very complicated to, to figure out what the damages are. Court says, hey, that's not our problem. If you're an antitrust violator, if you're a monopolist and it's difficult to calculate the damages, that's your problem because that's what the law says. And I totally agree with that. And then they talk about potential overcharges, primarily because there will be what they say conflicting claims to a common fund. And I believe that what they're trying to get at is if you have developers suing for overcharge at the same time that consumers are suing for overcharge, it's very easy for the law to screw that up. They can be different cases and Apple could wind up paying double or some other over 100% portion of the damages that actually went out into the world if Apple was a bad actor, if Nintendo was a bad actor, that if you have these multiple levels of liability, that could be a problem. They say that's not a case. This is not a case where multiple parties at different levels of a distribution chain are trying to all recover the same path through overcharge. This is a direct case where the consumers are trying to capture the overcharge that they were directly imposed on them. But again, I think that steals a base. I think that skips the main logical distinction, which is We don't have any evidence that the prices of things that are hitting the consumer's pockets are 30% higher than they otherwise would be. Uh, We know that the distributors, the developers have to pay 30% to Apple, but that entire amount is probably not passed along to the consumers. In general, when you're looking at these things economically, some portion of the amount is going to be passed along. uh, And if that is a monopolistic practice, if Apple is wrong to be having a 30% charge, some portion of that is going to be passed along. But also some portion of that is probably legal. Uh, Even if they find 30% is too high, there's probably some number they establish that is okay. And then you have to evaluate whatever number is okay against what we think the developers actually wound up overcharging the consumers to pass along the illegal part of the monopolistic charge. And you can see here quickly how it becomes a significant problem on a practical basis, thinking about court cases, thinking about how this will be done. 
And at the end of the day, of course, whether or not you think Apple is actually a monopolist in its own store and whether this case should have any merit whatsoever. Uh, And that's really the end of the case. They kind of basically say, hey, if you have a contract, uh, you can sue Apple. I don't know that I disagree with that. In fact, I'm inclined to agree with that as a rough assertion, but also to say, okay, well, that's a fine rule, but then Apple should just change its contracts. And I think that's ultimately what you're going to see done uh, very, very quickly. Uh, But that's the overall decision of the court. And now we're going to talk about the dissent. So if you're not familiar with Supreme Court cases or higher jurisprudence in any given jurisdiction, you might be wondering to yourself, why does anybody write a dissent? Uh, These are the four votes that didn't win. Uh, They didn't establish anything. This isn't the law. But it is the reasoning behind why these four justices, who are uh, learned folks uh, of their own, have decided that this was held wrongly. And they want to get that out there so that it could potentially be quoted, used as precedent for overturning the case at some future point in time, used as logic in other cases that might be tangential to this case. They want to make it clear exactly why uh, they voted the way they did. Now, there's not a strong dissent. There's not a long-form dissent in every case. But here, this dissent is almost as long as the opinion itself. And one of the things that you wind up seeing here, this is written by Justice Gorsuch, but the other side, the, the, the more right-leaning, as generally described in the public, justices of the Supreme Court joined with him in writing this. Um, he basically says what we've been talking about, that Illinois BRIC wasn't just about a direct contractual privity, that to limit it to that makes it too easy to get around, that what we're actually talking about is proximate causation. You see here in the middle section of his first paragraph, Illinois BRIC held that these convoluted pass-on theories of damages violate traditional principles of proximate causation and that the right plaintiff to bring suit is the one on whom the overcharge immediately and surely fell because the law isn't a terribly great tool to figure out how much uh, indirect damages fell down to the various parties that might otherwise be impacted by an action or a transaction or a series of events. That the law really wants to see proximate causation. That's what Illinois Brick was trying to codify. That's how these four read Illinois Brick. And that's the ultimate separation in this case. The majority says, Illinois Brick says, if you're a direct contractor, then you can sue for antitrust damages. And the minority here, the dissenting minority says, no, Illinois Brick says things about being directly harmed by what's happening. But what it means is that you're the most proximate to the one making the decisions that are causing the harm. And it's not really a contractual question. And I don't know that we need to go too deeply into it. Like I said, dissents are very interesting to read, and sometimes you get the most fiery language. You get some really uh, interesting justices that tend to get maybe a little bit more pop culture, a little bit more angry and animated uh, in their dissents. Uh, This isn't really a terribly animated dissent. There is some interesting stuff here. Um, But one of the things I really wanted to focus on, and we'll see if we can find it pretty quickly here, uh, was this notion of what we talked about early on, which is, in all likelihood, what a rule like contractual privity winds up having happen is that if you've got control of the relationships in general, as Apple surely does between the developers and the end user consumers, you just restructure your contracts in a way that avoids contractual privity. That's how a lot of things are uh, handled uh, out in the world that you have to avoid specific contractual relationships. Uh, So let's see if we can find that. So this is a little bit later on in the dissent, and they've already covered some of the things about why 
it's going to be complicated to find damages. It's going to require a lot of expert testimony that, in general, the law doesn't love because it is a little bit of magical thinking. It is a lot of people theorizing about what would happen in an alternate universe. Uh, and so it is always kind of problematic in an antitrust setting to kind of go over these questions. But they talk about those. They say, hey, it will be difficult. Don't hand wave that. that does, that's not the end of the inquiry, but it will be difficult. But then they talk about exactly what this rule does. And this was my favorite part of the dissent. I do think this hits close to home. And I would imagine that the Apples and Nintendos and Sonys of the world will wind up uh, moving forward on this kind of basis, changing their contracts in this manner. So let's take a look at what this says in the dissent. The United States and its antitrust regulators agree with all of this. So how does the court reach such a different conclusion? Seizing on Illinois BRIC's use of the shorthand phrase direct purchasers to describe the parties immediately injured by the monopoly overcharge in that case, the court, parenthetical, recharacterizes Illinois BRIC as a rule that anyone who purchases goods directly from an alleged antitrust violator can sue, while anyone who doesn't can't. Now, again, I'm not sure that they actually say that the who doesn't can't part in the holding, uh, but it's certainly implied by what they wrote. Under this revisionist version of Illinois BRIC, the dispositive question becomes whether an intermediary in the distribution chain stands between the plaintiff and the defendant. And because the plaintiff app purchasers, in this case, happen to have purchased apps directly from Apple, the court reasons, they may sue. This exalts form over substance. Remember, when you're thinking about what the court actually held, there's an entire section that the court put into their case holding about trying to avoid exalting form over substance because they don't want retailers, Apple, to be able to switch to a commission model when a retailing uh, charging model would allow for a suit. And this goes to the heart of what the problem with the rule is, in my opinion. I tend to agree with this. Instead of focusing on the traditional proximate cause question where the alleged overcharge is first and thus surely felt, the court's test turns on who happens to be in privity of contract with whom. But we've long recognized that antitrust law should look at the economic reality of the relevant transactions rather than the formal conceptions of contract law. And this case illustrates why. To evade the court's test, all Apple must do is amend its contracts. Instead of collecting payments for apps sold in the App Store and remitting the balance less its commission to developers, Apple can simply specify that consumers' payments will flow the other way, directly to the developers who will then remit commissions to Apple. No antitrust reason exists to treat these contractual arrangements differently, and doing so will only induce firms to abandon their preferred and presumably more efficient distribution arrangements in favor of less efficient ones, also that they might avoid an arbitrary legal rule. And that's really the, the best argument, I think, in the dissent. And I think it's one that we should certainly be thinking about. Uh, and it's certainly the absolute correct end result of what rule the court has put in place in this case, which is if you're going to have direct privity of contract, be the primary indicator of whether you can sue under antitrust rules in a circumstance like this, then the best option for a retailer uh, like Apple, a provider of a walled garden of a software ecosystem in which to purchase apps, is to make sure that the money goes straight to the developers and then it gets remitted their 30% back to them. In practicality, as you can probably imagine, in a land where we have electronic funds transfers and credit card payments and everything else, the difference between paying 100% to Apple, who then remits 70% to developers, and 100% to developers, who then remit 30% to Apple, is almost nil. There's almost no difference between those transactions. They result in the exact same place as they would have wound up otherwise. Only now there is no direct privity of contract with Apple because Apple has its contract with the developers. The developers have their contract with you. And you can't sue Apple for the 30% they're charging the developers to access the App Store, presumably, under this case. 
as I said in my warning in terms of interpreting these kinds of cases, you can't quite go so far as to assume the negative implication of a case like this, but it certainly seems like the way I would read it if I were advising Apple or Nintendo or Sony or Microsoft. So this might not be one of the pieces, the opening wedge in destroying the walled gardens, but this is certainly not the end of the story. Um, this is only really the kind of first salvo in whether or not Apple is going to be held liable for these kinds of things. This was getting these folks in the door, allowing them to sue Apple is really the first step that they had to get past. And now that they've gotten past it, they're going to proceed with a case that suggests that Apple is monopolistic. And that's going to have its own evidence. That's going to have its own discussions of the application of antitrust law. And that will be a case that I would recommend following because if they can establish that a manufacturer of a good cannot in its software control access to that software, cannot impose a 30% fee on that access, then a lot of the business models, a lot of the way the current console gaming space works would have to change. Certainly at bare minimum, making sure your contracts are with developers and not with the platform holder would go very far in terms of what the Supreme Court put out there today. But even if they were to change that, if it's found that Apple can be held as a monopolist of its own store, that's going to be a significant problem for the gaming industry and certainly something that they're going to want to follow with the ESA and the IGDA and everybody else. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to cover this case. I really think it is interesting. Check it out. We will have a link in the description. It is Apple Inc. versus Pepper. It came out today. Pretty sure I'll be the only person on YouTube going through the actual opinion this day, this afternoon. So if you followed me, thank you very much for checking this out. Please like, please subscribe. I cover a lot of business and a lot of law and a lot of video games and information technology. On a lot of days, I do this very often in the series Virtual Legality. I also wind up talking about pop culture. You see the video that I also did today because I wasn't planning on doing this Virtual Legality was a postmortem on the most recent episode of Game of Thrones. I very much enjoy doing those postmortems a little bit more than I enjoy the episodes themselves. Uh, and so please check that out if you're at all interested. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you listen to this on a podcast service, thank you so much for listening. Please rate this on the podcast service that you're listening to it on. Share it around with any friends that you think might be interested in this kind of thing. I do think if you're interested in law and business and video games, this is a great place to start because this is a very interesting case. I think it is probably, at the end of the day, wrongly decided for the practical on-the-ground uh, functionality of the industry, uh, but it's very difficult to argue against requiring privity of contract, and if you have privity of contract, being able to sue the party that you're contracting with. So I think they probably got it right in what's actually happening, but I think it's a pretty easy fix that hopefully the court will find is significant enough to get uh, the manufacturers, the game developers, uh, and the ecosystem platform controllers out of some of this legal liability and back onto kind of contractual grounds so that people can sue on contracts, absolutely, but can't jump steps uh, in very interesting ways. But those are just my two cents. Again, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And I will catch you on the next Virtual Legality. <laughs>